Well, I'm privileged to be here with you all today to break the bread of the word and address an important topic, the value of human life. But I want to start by way of an illustration. I grew up as the only girl with three brothers and a dad who was and still is an avid sports fan. He followed them all, football, basketball, baseball, but it was his love of baseball that fueled his interest in baseball cards. And growing up, my brothers would get those little packets of Topps baseball cards that had bubble gum in them. Now, if I'd wanted baseball cards, I'm sure I would have gotten my own. I was just happy for the gum. The boys would slip me every now and then. And honestly, if I'd gotten my own pack, I would have taken out the gum and handed them the cards. But with all the upside downness of COVID, believe it or not, baseball card trading has gone through the roof because of COVID-19. And I'm secretly thinking it's because all those wives are saying, will you clean out your closet? And guys are climbing and finding the box and dealing with it all. Anyway, uh, just this week, a 1952 mint condition Mickey Mantle baseball card shattered the previous record price for a purchase of a baseball card by almost $2 million. $2 million. Now, before this last sale, the record high had been from the sale of a Mike Trout card. Now, I got to be honest, I never heard of Mike Trout before. My husband tells me he still plays for the Angels, but there's his uh, baseball card. It's signed. Uh, Back in 2017, a guy from Las Vegas spent $400,000 on this Mike Trout card. And then in August of 2020, he sold the same card for $3.9 million. Astounding numbers, mind-boggling. And to be honest, it kind of makes me wish I had hung on to some of those baseball cards from my childhood. But I had no use for baseball cards because I didn't have any value for them. Now, without thinking about it overtly, individuals assign value to things, and so does our culture. And by way of these recent transactions, you can see the way the culture values baseball cards. But the question I'd like to consider today is how do we value more important things like human life? And how or by what measure do we determine that value? It's an important question because our determination of value not only impacts what we think, it impacts how we act. Is the value we assign to human life part of our personal conviction or the prevailing culture? Or is it the assessment of value assigned by God Almighty, the Father of us all? Well, I invite you to join me today as I explore this answer in my message entitled, Calculating Value. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, for all that I've prepared, for all that I've studied, it's just words on a page without the infusion of your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, fall fresh on me, fall fresh on us, fall fresh on all who are willing to receive your word today. Would you grant us a fresh understanding so that we can import your truth into our hearts and help us be doers of your word, not hearers only. We thank you, Lord, for your presence here, and we pray an outpouring of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we calculate the value of human life, as we gather on Sanctity of Life weekend, I want to start by answering my own question. How do you value a thing? Well, the value is determined by the price someone is willing to pay. Now, the calculation of value for a commodity like a baseball card, the starting place is demand. Many thought the guy who spent 400 grand on a baseball card was crazy. 
but he proved them wrong when he turned around and sold it for 3.9 million. Now I might say the guy who bought it for 3.9 million is crazy, but what do I know? Clearly nothing about baseball cards. Well, this concept of the value of human life, its sacredness, wasn't dreamed up by philosophers or ethicists, but it was established by God himself. And even though many churches will pause this weekend to recognize this anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision back in 1973 that legalized abortion in our country, the church didn't come up with sanctity of life either. No, it's a foundational truth laid out in the opening passages of Scripture. Let's look at a portion from Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 24. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, three things I want to point out from this passage. First, God demonstrated his enormous creative genius by bringing forth the great varieties of species among living creatures. In fact, scientists estimate there are over 10,000 species of birds, 6.5 million land species, and over 2 million ocean dwellers. But within that all vast, that vast array, each one produces, reproduces according to their kinds. Second, all creatures were not created equal. One exceeded them all. And as Pastor Allen pointed out last week, only humans bear the stamp of the Imago Dei, the image of God. For there was and is only one kind of human, the one created in God's image. Paul affirmed this truth when he spoke before the Greek philosophers in Athens, and he said this, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now, the third thing from this Genesis account is this. When God saw what he had created, he said it was good. But after he created humans, verse 31 says, God saw it was very good. Very good. To further grasp God's high view of humans, I want to trace this little word see or saw throughout the rest of the creation account and follow it into Psalms and beyond. First, when God saw his creation, it wasn't a casual glance or a check-in or a, a passing look. No, it's the same word used in Psalm 139 where David the psalmist struggles to grasp the magnificence of being intimately known by the creator, the implications of being seen by God. The verb there means searching, to see or pierce through to examine with pain and care, like searching for treasure or digging in a mine. Let's look at this portion together from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. 
Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian and preacher, said, We are embroidered with great skill and care, like that of an artist. You were seen in such detail that God knew you in your mother's womb, even before you were given conscious life, even as an embryo in your unformed state. You were always a person to God. There's more. Because in the same way God saw you in the womb, he sees your thoughts. Now, he sees not to collect facts about you like the stats on the back of a baseball card. He doesn't just know about us. He understands us in our context. God knows what we do, and he knows why we do it, because he knows who we are. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 that Pastor Allen just quoted, We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Truly, you were created for a purpose. He saw you in your mother's womb, and he sees you right now. He knows everything about you, and because of all humanity's inestimable worth to him, he loves you. Now, there's another place that this concept of God seeing powerfully intersects the Old Testament narrative, and it's in the story of Hagar. Now, you remember Hagar. We met her earlier in our study of Genesis. She was a slave girl used by Abram and Sarai as a means of humanly forcing the fulfillment of the promise God made to them to receive a son and an heir. But after Abram impregnated Hagar, household tensions escalated, and Hagar fled into the wilderness. And it was there, desperately alone, that she was seen by God. And after he ministered to her through an angel, Hagar declared, You are the God who sees me. And she called him Elroy-E. Hagar's experience dramatically shows up the heart of a father. His heart that is in opposition to the spirit of the world. Because Hagar was seen and known by God, even though she was treated as disposable by the world. Her culture labeled her a least of these, but not God. She was neither disposable nor expendable to him. She was seen by the living God, known by him, because she was created in his image and therefore valuable to him. In fact, she is the one he chose to illustrate this great truth for all of us that God sees and knows all. You see, God sees the mighty and the proud, and he sees the weak and humiliated. He sees the rich and the poor and the old and the young and the citizen and the immigrant. He sees those who are loved and belong, and he sees those who don't belong and nobody loves. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. 
You see, the Almighty God isn't just chilling there in the highest reaches of heaven, casually checking on things with his weekly admin council. No, the rite of Chronicles says this, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. No passing glance by the big man in the sky. No, it's the searching gaze of a loving heavenly father, the architect of creation who is continually looking for ways to bless, to strengthen, to provide for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. But tragically, while God values all people, we often fail to apply God's assessment of human value to one another. And this devaluation can strike in the most intimate of relationships. The first murder is recorded in the first family. It was brother against brother, and it didn't stop there. No, sin spreads quickly like a fast-moving infection until it was family against family and then clan against clan and soon nation against nation. Theologian Dr. William Pennell from Fuller Seminary said this, the most dangerous four-letter word in the English language is them. Wow. You know, sometimes thems are enemies, people who oppose us or even threaten us. But often we make thems out of people who we merely disagree with, the ones we don't understand, or maybe we can't relate to, or maybe they're just inconvenient. Artist Makoto Fujimura suggests we've lost sight so much in our culture as we've assigned it a spirit of pragmatism and utility. We've assigned value to things based on their usefulness and their perceived benefit, and that this attitude has infiltrated every institution. My question is, who decides what's useful and who decides what's beneficial? You see, we've lost sight of God's standard of value and traded it for one skewed by sin. In other words, many have rejected God's assignment of human value and replaced it by one determined by the world, birthed in our flesh, or concocted by the devil himself. Now, the Old Testament tells us of a man who valued the satisfaction of his flesh over the things of God, and that was Esau. You remember his story back in Genesis 25? He's described there as one who despised his birthright. He traded his inheritance, his portion of the covenant blessings, to his twin brother, Jacob, for a bowl of stew because he valued a full stomach more than the things of God. In fact, as Pastor Allen has focused our eyes on Hebrews chapter 12, we find Esau there, but he's not heralded as a hero of faith. No, he's squarely put in the other category because he's described as godless. Happily, there are others highlighted in Scripture who chose to reject a calculation of value defined by the world. And in the open, opening chapters of Exodus, we have the account of the Hebrew midwives who defied Pharaoh's genocidal order to kill all the baby boys. Exodus 1.17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. They feared God more than Pharaoh, and their faith in God influenced their value of human life and then the actions they took. And God was watching. He saw all they did. And so God was kind to the midwives. And because the midwives feared God, 
He gave them families of their own. Now notice how God rewarded them, not with a proclamation, not with a party, not with more paid vacation, but with families of their own. These countercultural behaviors were part of the New Testament too. In his book, The Triumph of Christianity, Rodney Stark, a professor at Baylor University, outlined the radical behavior of our own ancient forebears in regards to the same question. How could they choose life in a culture of death? And he marks out their response that played out in actions. For as the ancient plague slept through the Ro- swept through the Roman Empire and decimated their cities, the early Jesus followers stayed behind. Despite the potential contagion, and unlike their pagan neighbors who fled the cities, leaving family members to die on their own, and sometimes in their fear, pushing them out on the streets. But the Christians intervened, and they nursed their neighbors and embraced them as their own. These early believers confounded their contemporaries in other ways, too. Abortions were attempted in the first century but with much less effectiveness because the procedures or the potions often killed the mothers as well as the babies. So it became the cultural practice to expose unwanted infants, leaving them outside where they would succumb either to the elements or the wild beasts. And because Roman culture assigned a higher value to boys, it was often the baby girls who were discarded because they were too expensive to raise. Who can afford more than one? But ancient historians noted with amazement that the followers of Jesus were different. Not only did they not expose their own infants, they went in search of and rescued the babies abandoned by others. You see, they didn't want those, they didn't see those abandoned babies as thems. Instead, they embraced them as his and took them in as theirs. Throughout history, Christians have been called to be change agents through both words of life from the gospel of peace and deeds aimed at protecting and preserving life. Our calculation as followers of Christ is determined not from prevailing culture, but from God's word. We, like they in the first century, need to look through the lens with eyes of our Savior, not of society. And it was the rise and acceptance of Darwinism in the 20th century that added a new variable to this calculation of value. It was called survival of the fittest. And building on this worldview, some philosophers suggested a recalculation in the very definition of life itself. And rather than life defined as simply being alive, life required an explicit justification for living. In other words, the right to life was earned, not assumed. Now, because what a person thinks determines what they do, this shift in the definition of life became part of a devastating sequence. In 1920, a book published in Germany included the subtitle, Life Unworthy of Life. And in it, the authors decried the economic toll of the disabled and the infirmed and argued but by their elimination, funds could be more reallocated to the more productive. This worldview met its full expression in the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps and the Holocaust, where not just six million Jews were killed, but also scores of others, including the physically and mentally disabled, along with other undesirables. This philosophy impacted the founder of Planned Parenthood, 
Margaret Sanger, whose writings included a call for the elimination of human beings who should never have been born at all. And she's been criticized in recent years for what some call her legacy of racism, earned because of her targeted efforts encouraging abortion to those she deemed unfit. But that was then, and this is now. We've come a long way, haven't we? In August of 2017, CBS News reported that Iceland had virtually eliminated Down syndrome. Their strategy has grown, and now more countries claim to have eliminated the condition from their population of newborns. How? Not by altering the genetic abnormality, but by eliminating the child. A genetic counselor interviewed for the story said, we don't see abortion as murder, we just look at it as a thing that ended. Just a thing that ended. But how do you determine the value of a thing? It's the price someone is willing to pay. You see, Jesus was willing to pay with his life, to lay it down for you and for me, for these and for those and for thems. Which brings us back to the sanctity of life. The principle rooted in the Old Testament finds its ultimate fulfillment in the new because the value of, of human life was and is determined by Jesus, who by his willing sacrificial death on the cross demonstrated once and for all that we are all of inestimable worth to our Heavenly Father. Paul says it this way in Romans 5. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's no earning in that equation. The motive behind the cross was love, and it was completely a one-sided equation. The perfect life of the sinless Lamb of God for the very ones who drove the nails, spit in his face, mocked his name. Ones like you and me who have missed the mark, fallen short of the glory of God, live under the mastery of sin, and whose righteousness is compared to filthy rags. Colossians chapter 1. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Jesus' willingness to lay down his life to secure our forgiveness supersedes all other calculations of value. So what is the value of a thing? It's the price someone's willing to pay. God loves us all. He settled the question of our value once and for all on the cross. And so how do we now choose life in a culture of death? How do we make that transaction matter with our own actions? Will you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, in the quiet of an honest look, I think we can all see ways we haven't valued life the way Jesus does and have fallen victim to the world's assignment of value. Forgive us for putting others in the category of thems 
for aligning ourselves with the culture rather than with your word and not following your example of loving our neighbors. Forgive us, Lord, for words and actions that have torn down and not built up. We ask, Father, that we would not reject the lost. We would reach out to the lonely, and we would move in love. Help us live lives worthy of your name and offer the life you've given to us to others. May we be bold in our witness to the truth of the gospel and do our part to introduce a world desperate for healing to your saving grace. But Lord, it is impossible to live like you without being born by your spirit. And so now in the quiet of this place, in the quiet of this pause, I ask, Lord, that you would speak to those who have been separated and not received your saving grace. Father, you value all humans, and you want to save all of them. For those of you who are here tonight or listening online, I want you to pause in your own heart and see places where you've not allowed the loving spirit to move. Make that transfer of trust and receive the new life in Christ. The true thing that brings life out of death. Heavenly Father, we give you all the praise and the glory for your work in our lives, for the, your work in the world, and we look with hopefulness to the work, the redeeming work that you've called us to do as your children. So now, help us be light in a dark place. Help us shine the truth of your word in our lives so that we might be agents of your redemption for all. And we thank you and praise you, promising to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.